it's Nick here, and for this edition of the podcast, feeling kind of refreshed because hopefully you, like I, had a chance to experience the Jazz Festival this weekend, Labor Day weekend. The long weekend at Hart Plaza, always fun to hear great jazz. Kareem Riggins, artist in residence, for example, performed. It was really hot, brought the heat for the performance, but the other thing that brought the heat was the sun because it was hot out there. I know you experienced it like I did. In fact, all of us are. July 2023 was the hottest month on record. The previous month, June, also the hottest June we had in record. Climate temperatures are rising. Environmental concerns are spreading. So what can we do about it? Even here in Michigan, where we deal with extreme weather events causing all kinds of disruptions in our system. We wanted to take a look at the plan Michigan has as Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced The goal of making it to become 100% renewable, 100% clean energy usage in the state. What will that take both locally and nationally for us to be more concerned about the climate? We had some great guests on to discuss it. To start off the conversation, I spoke with Ben Jealous, the executive director for the Sierra Club and former president and CEO of the NAACP. Ben, how are you doing today? Good. It's good to be here. You know, the, uh, you, you know. Most often when I've been in Detroit leading something, it's because I was national head of the NAACP. It's, uh, I got to tell you, at 50, it's nice to be running the other great group of my childhood. I grew up in the association in the NAACP, and I grew up in the Sierra Club, and it's a great honor to have had the opportunity to run both. You know, that's quite a journey if you think about it, right? Running the NAACP, which... It has its history, of course, when the empowerment of black people so important. And you led a lot of changes there, especially social media, for example, I know was a big venture for you. Did all of that work. You even ran for governor, of course, in Maryland. But now the Sierra Club, I think some people wouldn't associate so yeah. much with progress <laughs> on the racial front, uh, although a lot of work in environment. Uh, what does it mean for you to be brought in? Why do you think you were the right choice for them to bring in to be the director at the Sierra Club? Yeah, you, you know, I, I sat down with the New York Times when I got the job and said, well, you're different than, you know, recent heads of the Sierra Club. I said, oh, because I grew up amongst the redwoods of Northern California. And they said, no, because uh, you're black. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, you know, the the reality is that that black people and brown people are the most likely groups racially, ethnically, to identify as environmentalists in the country. Uh And that sort of defies our imagination of what an environmentalist is, but fully like 80% of black people would self-identify as environmentalists. And at this moment, we are, you know, in this earth shot, right? Like we, you know, earth is... Apparently the best planet for humans in the universe. Well, so far that we have evidence of one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's, you know, there's scientists out there looking for alternative Earths and so forth. Some of that driven by the anxiety, you know, that uh, keeps my my 11-year-old son up at night sometimes, which is, should he have kids? Should he have grandkids? Where, Where is humanity headed on this planet? Yeah. And so when we're... When victory for us as environmentalists is literally an existential question for humanity, we need all of us in this movement. It takes all of us to win. I think as an organizer, as an organizer who's rooted in the black community, that's a, that's a big part of why I'm here 
at this moment, again, helping to lead an organization that's been, been part of my life for, for most of my life. Well, then let's get into what the Sierra Club does, right? Because I've seen the SEALs all over the place, but I think growing up, I would if you had asked me what the Sierra Club actually does, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you. So <laughs> since I have you here, what is the mission of the Sierra Club? You know, our m- mission is to explore, enjoy, and protect we get people into the outdoors every week somewhere around the country, usually many places around the country. Uh, the, we get young people into the outdoors, often uh, young people living in places where it can be hard to find a park or hard to find a safe park. And we get them in, in, into the outdoors so that they can explore, so that they can I- enjoy. And then we advocate. You know, we are advocating for a big climate package Right now, and your governor came out last week, Ms. Whitmer, in full support. Um, You know, historically, our advocacy has been principally about preserving forests, preserving wild places. Increasingly, though, it's about changing how we power everything, making sure that we take full advantage of what God gives us every day, which is like sun on half the globe at a time, (laughs) you know? And again, the whole globe gets heated up by the sun every day, and the whole globe globe could be powered by the sun every day. We got a fight down in Puerto Rico right now where literally the U.S. Department of Energy says we could be generating 4x the power that it takes to, to cover that entire chain of our island just from the sun, and yet the Army Corps and a governor who's stuck on stupid down in Puerto Rico with the oil and gas industry wants to bring in a liquid natural gas uh power plant, um, you know, as if what we need right now are more, you know, is more pollution uh, when we could just be doing things so much smarter. I mean, not only has solar and wind become the cheapest way to power everything, not only are the costs there dropping faster than anywhere else, even though it's already the cheapest, it's also the most resilient. It's, it's the one that's, that's least likely to give you trouble in a storm. Uh, and most quick to get back online. And, you know, with what's now seeing tornadoes on the, uh, you know, here in, in Michigan, including in the most northern parts of the state where we had never seen tornadoes before, we got to be paying attention to cost when it comes to power. And we got to be pay- paying attention to resilience, too. Yeah. And that's uh, something that's very important for us here in Michigan right now. But I think a lot of us also saw, for example, the presidential debate, GOP, the first one, yeah. right? <laughs> one of the loudest applause lines you had was from someone just saying climate change is not real. Now, I understand most people wouldn't agree with that, but yeah. it is an effective talking point, And it's something that you'd be fighting against, especially in places that are really impacted by climate. Now, with your or, uh, background as an organizer, then my question for you is how would the Sierra Club work to pull over more people to understand the importance of this message, these impacts that you're already mentioning? How do you foresee the Sierra Club and what you can do get more people on board to this message? I mean, First of all, let's just recognize like where we are as far as the truth in this country right now. We're way back like 100 years ago in the era of yellow journalism. You know, we've got all kinds of crazy disinformation online. I think most of our families have been impacted. Um, you know, had some family members go way down some Internet rabbit hole. Thirty percent of the people in this country think that Hillary Clinton is in the first lady, the former first lady of, of the United States is a space alien. Right, so your ability to get applause here with things that defy all science—you mm. know—apparently yeah. you can curate rooms, and, and increasingly, unfortunately, those rooms are curated by the Republican Party. 
right? Because it's nuts that uh, at a Republican national debate, you could get such strong applause on somebody denying that climate change is real. Uh, the scientists are in full consensus. There are some who want to make, I don't know, a whole lot out of like the maybe slightly less than 1% chance we got this all wrong, rather than focusing on the 99% chance we, we got this all right. And so with the science and such high levels of Agreement, the scientists and, and everything that, that, that they produce, that human beings are creating this climate disaster, what do we do? The first thing we do is we need to shift to electrify everything. And as we do, power it with the sun. God gave us, if you're not a person of faith, the, the universe gave us this incredible source of power in this bright star at the center of our universe we should be using a, a lot more of the, of the power that it transmits to Earth. Yeah. It's the cheapest way to power everything, and right with that is wind. Yeah. And so by shifting how we power everything, we reduce the carbon emissions, the p pollution that we breathe, and the pollution that's heating up our planet. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a lot of science that would back you up on that. I think a lot of the experts would back you up on that, but we also know that in a lot of places – that uh, folks aren't so trusting of institutions. It's my understanding that uh, one of your focuses with the Sierra Club is this 50-state strategy now mm -hmm. to get people more on board. Uh, you've made the pitch to me right now, but how are you working to get out there and meet the folks and get that message out there and convince them to come aboard? Well, you know, I got to tell you, we've been converting people, if you will, to our cause the same way for 132 years, which is, again, you get folks into the most beautiful parts of the outdoors and they want to protect it. Mm. Uh, and we're doing that everywhere. The reason that we're hiring state directors in every single state is that uh, more than 80% of the large-scale renewable power projects are going into red states. They're going into states with Republican governors, Republican-controlled legislatures. And we don't want to be litigating in all those states because, you know, somebody failed to just consult the people of the state. Yeah, We've, we've shown um, states like... Uh, like uh, Illinois with Governor Pritzker, that we can pull together uh, and um, you know, we, the Sierra Club, and the governor push through permitting reform there. Yeah. Well, similarly, when it comes to wind power, when it comes to solar power, we've got to cut the red tape, make it easier for us to power ourselves. And I got to tell you, people who are not trusting in institutions start with not trusting the power company. Yeah. which is literally there to profit off of ancient technology that makes our neighbors sick, that gives kids asthma, that cuts our senior citizens' lives short. Um, like, if you don't trust an institution, man, put a solar panel on your roof and go off the grid. The reality yeah. well, is, I think there's some people who are trying to go off know, the grid right now. You know, you, and, you, and you hook that up to a Tesla battery or many other yeah. different types of batteries, and, and wow, Suddenly, you know, you can power your house, you know, during that storm. Yeah, well, you're in Michigan right now. Do you see any unique opportunities for Michigan uh, that can link up with your focus here? Where are there opportunities here in Michigan that you've seen that well, look, you can take advantage I, I, of? I think, I think all of us, you know, need to in this moment, and I just mentioned Tesla, which really should, you know, unionize sooner rather than later. I drive an all-electric e e F-150. My partner drives a Chevy Bolt. And um, 
we have such an opportunity right now because of the Inflation Reduction Act to open factories and to open them in the Rust Belt and to open them like they're getting ready to open a Samsung battery factory over in Indiana that will be unionized. And this is a time, I think, to really be supportive of the UAW as they prepare for a big fight. It's also, you know, a time for us as a country to come together and decide what kind of economy we're trying to build. You know, we are, you know, this IRA moment, this Inflation Reduction Act moment, these billions, even trillions of dollars pouring into our economy is really our anti-NAFTA moment. No longer are we shutting down factories in this country as we've shut down 63,000 since 1993. We are opening factories again, and we got to be focused on making sure that as we open new factories to produce batteries, to produce solar panels, that those are union jobs. And in doing so, uh, we can really safeguard the future for the families who depend on not just you know factory work, but good-paying factory work. You know, it's very noble for you to bring up these causes. It links it up to people, especially here in Southeast Michigan, who are worried about their pocketbooks, the support of unions you just brought up, the support of factory jobs, however, uh, and bringing factories back. However, when I think of the Sierra Club again, you mentioned forest and protecting those things. This would seem to be a little larger and more expansive of a view of what the Sierra Club would be impacting again. How does that fit for you? I'll let you go ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, the last time I was crisscrossing the country for a green group was the Student Environmental Action Coalition back in 93. And I was their spokesperson against NAFTA. The reality is that greens have known for a long time that if we shift factories, for example, to Mexico, or as what happened with NAFTA, they talked about Mexico, but end up going to China, uh, that, that, that wherever those factories land, they land in a place that's less likely to enforce environmental protection laws than the United States. Mm. Um, What we also know now is that they land in places where the carbon footprint to ship the things back to this U.S. market is greater. Uh, And then you add the IRA, and on top of those historical concerns, let's put factories in places where the environmental laws will be enforced. Let's put factories in places where they're close to to the main market they're producing for so the carbon footprint is small. What we also see is that we are, as a nation, uh, able now to, to not just design the technologies of the future, but to get back to producing them here. And at Sierra Club, we're fighting for all those things. Yeah, yeah. A very important message there. It's, it's, we're really happy that you're here in Detroit. When I was talking to you a little bit earlier, wondering exactly why would the president of the Sierra Club be here in Detroit? You told me that uh, you're checking in with all your different chapters. I thought after going on the website and doing some research and seeing a young Ben Jealous <laughs> with this lid on here that looks like yes. a Detroit Tigers hat, that you were just trying to get another one for your repertoire. Are you a Tigers fan? Well, you I'm telling you, if uh, anybody knows where I can find one in an eight and a quarter, please call the station now. <laughs> I will definitely go bother to have it for the collection. Uh, back then, uh, my best friend was a Detroit Tigers fan. He knew that his best friend had a large cranium. He found one that fit, so I wore that thing until it was rags. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> this is good because you're advertising not only yourself on the Sierra Club website, also the greatest logo 
in baseball. I, I think my last question for you, Ben, is that uh, you've acknowledged that you have a unique name. And when I was bringing you on here, I was workshopping how I could fit Ben Jealous into uh, you know some corner. I've been joke. jealous. You've been jealous. Yeah, I've been exactly. Je- well, I'll, but, I'll tell you one though. I'll here, tell, so the president of the Michigan NAACP, Yvonne White, mm-hmm. when I was named president. Uh, nationally, I was the youngest in their history and the lightest in a long time. You'd have to go back to Walter White to find somebody as light-skinned as me leading the association. And some folks were a little uncomfortable with that. And I found myself out here at the Detroit uh, Freedom Fund dinner, Reverend uh, Wendell Anthony, and, you know, it's 10,000 people in one room, so you're the new national president you have to be there. And part of what I was doing that night was introducing the state president, Yvonne White, so I said, look, you know, before I get started, let me just point out the ob- obvious. Your state president's white, and I'm jealous. <laughs> and it brought the house down. That's and after it. that, everybody was fine. As soon as they saw that, that, you know, this young brother could talk trash as well as anybody in Detroit, we were all good. Well, there you go. I just wanted to make sure we had the best Ben Jealous joke out there so no one was approaching you with that weak stuff. If you want to come through with your Ben Jealous joke, you got to go Jealous, higher than that. Ben Jealous, executive director of the Sierra Club, and point out the obvious, I've been jealous my whole life. There it is. Done and done. Well, Ben, uh, I think a lot of people are jealous. I had a chance to talk to you right uh, now. Thank you. So thank you for your time and joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you for what you do for this, for this city and for our country. Yeah. When we return, we're going to take a look at what we're doing here in Michigan. As Ben Jealous brought up, Michigan's taking a look at what we can do to become 100% clean energy. We're going to dive into what that plan is a little bit, implementing clean energy. Talking with State Senator and Director of Climate Action for the University of Michigan, when we return on Detroit Today. It's Detroit Today. Nick Austin here with you, filling in for Stephen Henderson. We're talking about the environment, talking about climate here in Michigan, especially because Governor Whitmer brought up how she wants Michigan to run on 100% clean energy. So how did we get to this point and how do we enact the government's desires to build a healthier climate? What kind of jobs do we need to create in that process? Ben Jealous just discussed that with us. To talk about it more, we have two people with us. Starting out, State Senator Sam Singh is a Democrat from Lansing, and he joins us right now. Uh, Sam, Senator Singh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me back on the show. Hey, glad to have you back here. And we also have with us another returning guest, Lisa Liesl Clark, the Director of Sustainable Climate Action Engagement for the University of Michigan School of uh, for Environment and Sustainability. She, she also wrote a major report on Michigan's energy transition while running the state's Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy, which we like to refer to as EGLE. Liesl, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you back also. But we're going to start with you, Senator Singh, as the governor made a big statement, as we've been discussing, about transitioning the state's energy source last week. Does this mean that the state will be pushing for clean energy like wind, solar, hydrogen and giving up on things like oil and natural gas? Yeah, we were very excited to hear uh, the governor's remarks last week asking for 100 percent. Uh, clean energy. We um, had, as a group in the Senate, we actually introduced a set of bills called the Clean Energy Future Plan, which uh, would codify a lot of the elements of the governor's My Healthy Climate Plan. 
one of those pieces in there was 100% clean energy uh, by 2035, and that was a cornerstone of uh, those bills that we introduced in uh, early April. Yeah. You know, when I think about the idea of going to 100 percent clean energy for just a state, I wonder about the viability of it, because states don't have quite the same resources as the federal government. So can you give me an idea, Senator Singh, uh, what do you think it would take? Does Michigan have the resources to implement it? How would we be able to accomplish that? Yeah, we do feel uh, as we take a look at what renewables have done over the last uh, decade, the cost that it's brought down. Uh, for overall energy uh, consumption and, and the cost that the utilities have to bring it to, to market, it's been remarkable. And so this is a unique opportunity in time. And as your previous uh, people had mentioned, uh, we have an incredible opportunity because of the federal uh, IRA. The, those dollars and resources are available. They're only available for this short period of time. And to utilize what we want to do in the state legislature, along with the federal resources, is going to make this a very viable future. Uh, for clean energy. It is a unique opportunity right now, and we are going to transition to Liesl as you are the former director of Eagle. Um, how big of it a deal is it for you as someone who's worked in that sector to hear the governor's plan uh, as she laid out, uh, or she we expect her to lay out any further detail later this week? Well, Nick, it really is a big deal. I think that it's important for the administration to be uh, very vocal. And the governor's been consistent on this, you know, throughout her time in office with the beginning of the creation of Eagle, the reorganization to elevate climate and energy. Um, you know, certainly some of the early executive orders that um, stated where her intent was. Um, but then couple it with the fact that, you know, there's a very active conversation at the legislature right now. All of that comes together to demonstrate Michigan's commitment. And that's an important component because when I was at the state, we heard regularly from businesses that wanted to locate in state and were really uh, thoughtful and questioning about what did Michigan's grid look like. Um, so we were hearing businesses that wanted this and we know that this is something that the residents of our state want and the residents of um, the United States want, frankly, uh, because the transition is something that is so important. We're all sensing the urgency from the hottest days of the summer that we're all having right now. Um, and we know that it's an improvement uh, from a public health perspective. And we know that um, we honestly, we just can't afford not to. When you yeah. couple the IRA incentives with the cost of these really challenging weather events that we're having, um, you know, this is, it, it makes more sense to transition and to be the leader on the clean energy economy the way the governor lays out. Yeah, that, that does make sense, especially as it's hitting home for most of us here now, these extreme weather events having an impact on our livelihood. So a lot of folks are buying into the transition and we have the funds, as you both have mentioned. But when I think about just because you have the funds doesn't mean you have the ways of implementing them. For example, the CHIPS and uh, Manufacturing Act or the, the CHIPS Act, uh, I've heard that for, in terms of manufacturing uh microchips we don't necessarily have the infrastructure or the brain power to necessarily do it here in state we got to coach up some more people i want to know where we're at with clean energy and those technologies here um in terms of this where are we at in in, in terms of implementing it in our state i mean how how much do we have now and what will it take to get to 100 percent? how fast can we make that happen liesel well, um, we can absolutely hit the goals that are set here. And, you know, we've got a very talented workforce as a starting point. Plus, we've got deep expertise in the manufacturing space and in the innovation space. Uh, do we need to spend some time and develop and make sure we're attracting and retaining the right workers with 
um, the type of innovation background that's going to get us where we need to go? Absolutely. Um, so I'm not going to suggest that we've got all of it, but you know, the great, great approach that Michigan's always taken is don't try to predict the future, but instead enable it. Mm. Um, when you lean on the collaboration and skill sets that we've got here, you know, we've got all the pieces. We've got talented workforce. We've got um, an active and interested business community. Uh, we've got great academia. I can uh, say to you sitting from sitting here in Ann Arbor, uh, University of Michigan is tapped up and ready to go. And I know uh, Senator Singh feels the same way sitting there in East Lansing. Um, you know, we've got academia, we've got, we're producing the workforce that we need partnered with uh, community colleges and vocational training um, because we know we need people on the whole spectrum. And frankly, this is something communities want to. This is something we're hearing over and over. You certainly heard it from your first guest, um, but we're also hearing it, you know, both uh, in rural communities as well as in urban communities across the state. Eagle started the Catalyst Communities Program, uh, which brings together uh, a lot of those folks and provides uh, resources and a way to talk about um, where the future's going. Um, we've got what we need here in state. What we need to do is plant the flag and get to it. All right. Well, I was referring to the IRA earlier, the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as the Chips and Science Act, to be specific. But I want to convert back over to you, Senator Singh. What I'm hearing from Lisa is we've got buying in the communities. We've got a governor who wants to do it. We got a bunch of money. We got the brain power. Why, why isn't it done now? Why hasn't the bill just been passed yet? If we have all of this buy-in, uh, Senator Singh, what do you need to do legislatively to get this football uh, over the, the touchdown zone, over the line? You know, we've been spending the, uh, the spring as well as the summer meeting with stakeholders uh, all throughout the process. Uh, even though there's a lot of support, I think at the same time it's a complicated uh, set of policies and we want to make sure that we get that right. You know, we want to obviously incentivize clean energy, but we want to make sure that it's being done in a really responsible way so that the grid is reliable, that uh, it's affordable uh, for uh, our ratepayers uh, as well as our communities. And so making sure that we have the right balance has been really important. I look forward to uh, next week uh, on the 14th, uh, Chairman McCann will be having a set of hearings uh, starting on the that Thursday, but going into the following week. We're going to take a look at four bills out of the package that we had introduced um, in uh, April. The first is a, a bill by Senator Geis that pushes that 100% clean energy. Uh, the second bill is modernizing the Public Service Commission so they can make sure when they do their IRPs, which are the integrated resource plans for the utilities, that they can take in to uh, climate uh, considerations, health considerations, uh, affordability considerations. And so we're making sure that that's part of the process uh, going forward. Uh, third bill will be about energy waste reduction. We've got a great program that we started in 2016 uh, by that law. Uh, we wanna expand that and make that more aggressive as we go forward. And the fourth bill in concept that we're working on on the Senate side is a just transition uh, bill that would create a just transition office in state government that would help uh, workers, if they're being uh, transitioned in a clean energy, make sure they have the training and the technical assistance so they can take on the new jobs. But we also got to help communities. A lot of communities have uh, very intensive property tax uh, intensive uh, equipment uh, with coal plants and so forth. And as those shut down, that revenue will be lost. And so we want to make sure that we help those communities make that transition as well. And so that's one of the reasons why it's taken us some time to make sure that we're doing it in a thoughtful way and make sure all the voices around the table are heard. Uh, and that's what we look forward to this fall because now we can have really uh, proactive hearings. And my hope is to get these policies done 
here in the next two months. Yeah, we're speaking with State Senator Sam Singh, a Democrat from Lansing right now, as well as Liesl Clark, the Director of Sustainable Climate Action Engagement for the University of Michigan School for Environment and Sustainability. But we also want to speak with you right now with this big plan, this big push for Michigan to become 100, transition to 100% clean energy. What do you make of this push? What do you think this could do for our economy? And do you work in wind, solar, or the hydrogen fields? What have you seen in your fields? What about electric vehicles? Where do you think that fits in here? What do we need to do to implement this? What ideas do you have or what questions do you have about what it will take to implement it here in Michigan? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019, and we can work you into the conversation. I want to take a look now at energy specifically when it comes to the interaction with DTE and consumers energy as a lot of what we're dealing with this summer has been these long power outages that folks are saying is just not what they were expecting from their utilities and their power companies uh, where technically they're all regulated by the Michigan Public Utilities Commission Commission so what I'd like to know is uh, what powers or controls would we need to put into place uh, through the commission in order to ensure that DTE and consumers are also transitioning to clean energy alternatives? Senator Sink. Yeah, the bills that we've uh, introduced, uh, on, at least on the climate side, uh, are the things that will help the uh, commission be able to um, uh, put forward a plan working with those two utilities and the other utilities that they uh, regulate to make sure that they can get to 100%. Uh, as well as uh, have good energy waste reduction programs and so forth. But another issue that you're bringing up is more about the reliability. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that there has been a lot of work in the uh, state house uh, on uh, taking a look at the reliability question about accountability. Um, uh, the chair of the energy committee there, she has gone across the state, done a wonderful job of bringing input and advice and thoughts uh, from uh, all across the state to take a look at what types of things need to happen for an accountable system. Uh, my understanding is that there might be a set of bills that will be introduced in the House that will deal with more of the reliability as well as the accountability measures. Uh, the bills that we're talking about in the Senate are really focused around climate and making sure that we make that uh, transition. But we look forward to working with our colleagues on the House side as well to talk about reliability and accountability as well. I look forward to moving to the phones right now as we have Jim in Waterford. Jim, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Well, good morning, folks. Um, I work in the uh, sewer water industry, and we're working on a project that allows us to um, extract methane from sewer solids, and we can generate a significant amount of energy through that, and any water system can do that. Have we thought about that? Is that something? How do I find out to do more with that? Mm, Liesl, I present that to you. Yeah, so, you know, these types of projects are so critical. When we look at that water energy infrastructure um, nexus, it's such a place where there is huge opportunity. So, you know, Jim, I really appreciate what, you know, you're talking about doing. We do see those types of projects across Michigan. We need to see more of it. Um, so there is support in the um, IRA uh, for innovative energy projects like that. Um, and it's certainly something that the Michigan Infrastructure Office um, has been thinking about as well. And, you know, certainly Eagle um, has some uh, ways to support. 
Um, I do, I'll let the Senator talk about, you know, if there might be opportunities in the, you know, regulatory structure for that. Um, but when I want to say that when we talk about the types of energy resources that are necessary to get us these goals, we're going to, it's a lot of different kinds of energy resources. Certainly it's wind and solar and storage and some of those things that immediately come to mind. Um, but the state's been working hard on a hydrogen initiative. Um, to see where you know that is an important component of what we do going forward. Um, we've got to talk about you know carbon capture and how does that fit into the future. Um, when we look at it from an industry perspective, you know we know how to do a chunk of work on the grid, but we don't know how to do everything that we need to do yet. We need innovation for that last component. And projects like what Jim is describing, even though it's you know uh, the idea of capture from water is sort of an old concept, but the innovation from the state perspective, bringing it to scale, bringing it to something that can really bear on the grid and have a, a resource support um, is is still like uh, kind of futuristic, so to speak. Um, but we are seeing more of those types of projects happening. And so fitting them into the grid's important solution. One of the things that um, I think people have heard a little bit about in the media lately um, is the fact that our rural communities could be taking more advantage of the BREAT program too, which is the Renewable Energy America program, I believe, through USDA. Um, so grants and loans that can also incent um, more projects like methane capture, um, like water energy infrastructure, like, you know, certainly wind and solar as well, making sure that it touches all 83 counties of our state. Senator Singh, I do present to you, are there legislative opportunities not only for that, but for more innovative approaches and funding for things that we are still working on uh, and trying to get them over the finish line? Yeah, and that was one of the great things about this process over the, the spring and summer, getting stakeholder uh, feedback, you know, one of the things that you'll see in the next draft of uh, legislation from us is, you know, the continuation of biomass um, uh, as part of our, our strategy for, for clean energy. Uh, as, you know, Jim mentioned, you know, there's the opportunity for methane capture. There's anaerobic digesters that are taking manure as well as food waste and being able to turn that uh, into energy. Obviously, we have landfills all throughout our state that if we could take the methane out so it's not going into the air, but turn that into energy, uh, that would, you know, do two things for us, you know, make cleaner air, but at the same time, uh, you know, help us power the grid in a different way than some of the other uh, systems we have in place. And so uh, that helped us, you know, really change some of the initial policy that was uh, developed. And we'll see more of that uh, as we go forward. I do want to put into, uh, you know, just consideration, there was a bill that uh, a set of bills that passed uh, in the uh, month of June that the governor signed over the summer um, to uh, uh, expand the commercial PACE program, and that's the Property Assessed Clean Energy Program that allows local governments to work with individuals who want to uh, try to do more energy efficiency uh, on their property, uh, and they use basically the taxing authority of the local government to do that. And one of the things that we changed uh, in that law, it was a, a great uh, bill that uh, Senator McDonald Rivet uh, out of uh, Bay County uh, had put forward was to allow the agricultural community to be able to take anaerobic digesters and other types of uh, clean energy uh, type of investments, make sure that that becomes more affordable to them 
uh, that will then help also with the energy supply here uh, in the state. So not only do we have um, you know legislation in the clean energy part that will include some of the things that Jim talks about, but we also created a mechanism for some of the funding to make it a little bit easier for farmers and collective of farmers to be able to bring in some of that equipment uh, onto their sites. Very good. And we're going to continue our discussion about clean energy with State Senator Sam Singh and Liesl Clark when we return on Detroit Today. It's Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin. And for Stephen Henderson discussing the state's transition to 100% clean energy, the goal announced by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, what will it take? What are we looking to do to implement that? How quickly can we do it? Is it a good idea? All those questions and more. We're speaking with State Senator Sam Singh, as well as Liesl Clark, the Director of Sustainable Climate Action Engagement for the University of Michigan's School for Environment and Sustainability. We're going to Jeff in Ann Arbor. Jeff, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Uh, hi, thank you. I, I want to congratulate Senator Singh and the other legislators for the climate legislation. My one big concern is uh, all the talk is about renewables because they're so much cheaper than nuclear power. But the proposed legislation will allow DTE and other utilities to lowball nuclear power costs get the Public Service Commission to okay these very expensive plants and then stick consumers with five or ten times more costly electricity. So we know from the past that the utilities will always choose nuclear because they make more profit when they spend more money and those, those dollars end up being stuck to consumers. Senator Singh, go ahead. Well, you know, I think the IRP process that was part of the 2016 law really created a mechanism for the Public Service Commission to take a look at all aspects of the energy creation. And one of the things it did was try to address issues that Jeff has, right? What uh, wants to make sure that how do you provide uh, the best amount of energy to the public, but at the same point in time at an affordable cost. And so, you know, we haven't seen any new nuclear uh, developments, you know, since uh, you know, for, for decades uh, now, uh, you know, obviously there's some questions about bringing back the Palisades, uh, you know, site that has gone down uh, in the last uh, few years, but uh, there really hasn't been a talk about a new site uh, here. Now, the clean energy bills do allow for nuclear. Uh, it is obviously a, a clean energy uh, source, but my sense is based off the IRP process that we have in place and will continue under this legislation, it won't... Uh, you won't see new nuclear coming on board at the way we've seen it in the past because of the cost, because of the permitting time it takes at the federal level. Uh, and my sense is the IRP process and the commission, as they vet through all the opportunities that they will have to provide energy, we won't see much new energy uh, from the nuclear side, but we'll see a continuation of what is already existing and the potential of Palisades if it does get restarted, something that the governor had put in the budget. If that does happen, we'll see that added back on. But I'm not sensing that there will be any new nuclear in the short term at this moment. Well, that's something to keep an eye on. And I do appreciate that really, really important question, Jeff and Ann Arbor. Very important to bring that up. As we continue right now, we're going to move to Fred in Yale. Fred, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi. Um, I'd like to express that I'm really concerned that uh, 
that the Democratic administration and the legislature forced upon rural people uh, to uh, take solar farms and uh, wind farms. I know there's a, I live in a rural area. I'm a long-time Democrat, a long-time supporter of alternative energy, but there's a movement to, uh, that I understand to take away control, and that's really causing a lot of people to to join the Republican Party and uh, in opposing this. And I'm just afraid it's going to give a lot of uh, the Republicans an opportunity to perhaps change the balance of power, uh, yeah. win elections in the next election cycle and uh, destroy all the progress we've made. So, Yeah, Fred, your phone's breaking up on me just a little bit, though I want to make sure I can clarify this and understand it. You're a rural voter, you're, from, you're a Democrat, but you're concerned about uh, this bill or the state taking away local control. When you say local control, would that mean local control to implement um, uh, clean energy, or are you saying to make their own choice about energy? Individuals, just I want to get that clarification so I understand what local. Well, it would be great if uh, we could um, have programs that would encourage people to have their own source of energy. Mm. Um, you know, okay. which we have some, but even more, put more funds into people putting. Yeah. solar or wind on their own property got but it create these huge uh wind farms and solar farms in the agricultural areas it's, it's really uh stirring up a lot of opposition oh, I see. i'm afraid it's gonna backfire folks in the rural areas don't want to have these uh these wind farms in their backyards, basically, is what I'm understanding. Uh, so, Senator Singh, I present uh, Fred's concerns to you. What response do you have? Sure. You know, I, I think one of the things we want to take a look at, especially when we look at solar, uh, as we look at deploying that all across the state, uh, to me, it is an all above strategy. I don't believe it's a rural only strategy. I do believe we need to find incentives to put it in uh, uh brownfields and urban areas. I think that fits into suburban areas. We have a lot of big box stores, warehouses in suburban areas, or you could use part of the parking lot, part of the uh, the stores to put uh, uh, solar. And so to me, I want to have an above all strategy for all communities to deal with that. I think unfortunately there are some myths that have been created, especially in rural communities. I hear that because I have got a lot of rural communities in my district where they think that we're going to take up a, a significant a part of uh, farmland. Uh, to do this. And I think if you look at Michigan State University studies, you know, we're probably looking at potentially 2% of the state's farmland if we're not looking at other parts of the state uh, for for this type of uh, solar energy deployment across the state. My hope is that we will protect the individual uh, farmers who do want to put solar on their land. They have a property right. I think they should be able to do that. Most of our energy and almost all of our energy is actually done at the state level. So, you know, when we take a look at natural gas, when we take a look at coal, we take a look at where pipelines go, that's all done through the Public Service Commission. And I think we should take a, continue to take a look at them having a role. But I also want to work with the locals. Uh, you know, one of the things I was proud about in the budget is that uh, there's a climate ready communities uh, program. I think there was about $30 million put in there to help incentivize uh, 
local communities to uh, bring on uh, solar into their communities. And so we're going to take a look at a variety of different models, I think, over the next few weeks. And But siting is going to be an important part, and I want to make sure that we, we get it right. But I want to also make sure that we can meet these goals that are not only for uh, this plan, but what our utilities need, what our businesses need, what our communities need for us to be able to thrive in an economic future that is, uh, you know, driven by clean energy. Yeah, Fred and hey, Yale. I, yeah, go jump in, Please do. Okay, thanks. Um, so, you know, obviously what the senator said is that absolutely uh, spot on. And I just wanted to add that, you know, there, so first off, I am from rural Michigan. So uh, I grew up in Huron County, um, which I think everybody knows has a lot of wind development as well as solar development. And there are ways to do this work correctly uh, so that it's working with communities. And I think that, you know, that's the intent here is to work with communities. University of Michigan just started uh, an Empower Local Communities uh, project. And I know some folks are familiar with Dr. Sarah Mills, who's done a lot of work in rural parts of the state to think about um, what are the prosperity efforts that rural communities are looking at? How do they want their communities to look in the next, you know, coming decades? And how can renewables fit into that? There are some places renewables shouldn't be deployed, where energy generation shouldn't be deployed. There's a lot of places where it can be and where it can be done in concert with those communities to create funding mechanisms that are gonna support those communities over the long term. So we have to have all of those conversations and do it in a way that, again, we're uh, advancing energy work for uh, rural and urban Michiganders all at the same time. 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. And we can work you into this conversation about clean energy, the goal to implement 100% clean energy in Michigan. We want to learn more about that right now. We've got another call online. This is Joe in Pontiac. Joe, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hey. Hi, uh, thanks. Great, great topic. My uh, question would be, how do we rein in the utilities to get on board? I mean, it appears that they are stopping the individual uh, from going green. And uh, they do have a monopoly. And the, the Public Service Commission appears to be tatawing to them and not to the consumer. Yeah, you know, Joe, we did discuss this, touch on it a little bit with Senator Singh, but uh, to the extent that you do have that concern, Senator Singh, I'll let you uh, go back in maybe a little bit more on uh, any control mechanisms. You mentioned kind of more of a carrot approach, but are there any restrictions that we would see in this legislation to uh, get them on board? Yeah, one of the things we want to see is, you know, obviously expansion of uh, solar on community, in communities, on on homes and so forth. And so, you know, we've been seeing the distributive generation cap, a desire to increase that um, to make sure that we can deploy uh, solar on rooftops, uh, you know, at businesses and at, at farms and at, at people's homes. Uh, you know, there's a series of dollars that the state is going to be going after at a federal program through the IRA called Solar for All. Uh, they're looking to apply for 350 to $400 million to bring in community solar projects uh, that would help local communities uh, be able to access that in low-income uh, communities, uh, as well as more uh, rooftop solar in low-income communities. And so I think there's a combination of working with the Public Service Commission, putting uh, some additional pressure on our utilities to make sure that we can make uh, uh, solar available to communities, both at a community level and at a household level, 
Uh, and that's going to be part of the discussion that we have this fall. Yeah, I appreciate that, Joe and Pontiac. I know this is a big concern folks have. They want to be able to uh, get on the grid themselves and see if they can generate power, maybe at a little bit of a cost savings. Liesl, this comes up a lot, but I just want to get an idea of how much impact do we get when we talk about these con- community organizations in terms of generating uh, solar at the individual level? What type of an impact does it have on the grid? Is it cost effective? What type of savings are we looking at and about how big of a percentage of folks would this even be? Yeah, that's an important question, Nick. And I think one of the things that's been running through my head through this conversation is the interconnectedness of the grid and the need to advance the grid. So a component of this resiliency issue that people are having across the state, particularly in Southeast Michigan of late, um, is uh, certainly tree trimming and maintenance of the grid, but it's also updating the grid and making sure that um, the technology that's on the distribution lines um, is taking advantage of the latest innovation. And that's something that, you know, I think we're seeing more of the utilities deploying um, connect that will also enable uh, two way connections. Um, so better connection for um, people that are doing rooftop solar or for smaller projects that need to uh, feed into the grid. We need um, more robust grid management. I heard it described one time as instead of like I-75 up the middle of the state, what we need to see is downtown Detroit, where you've got more on-ramps and off-ramps. But it takes a smarter grid to do that, too. So that's an important place we're going. Yeah, and it takes smart people to have these conversations like you, State Senator Sam Singh from Lansing, as well as Lisa Clark. Thank you both for joining us on Detroit Today. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Program director is Adam Fox. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. The Detroit Today podcast is edited by Jack Philbrand. Support the podcast by supporting WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Just go to WDET.org slash give.